You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. We'll now turn to book three of Aristotle's politics and get to the real heart of his political philosophy and get some sharper definitions of what is political rule and into the big questions about political philosophy. If we were to look at a series of Greek terms with their translations, I think we might see how much fits together at once. If we think of the Greek terms polis, polites, politeia, politeia, politikos, all of those you see the same root polis, translated in English as city or state, citizen, citizen body or the people, constitution, statesman. You see the common theme, politikos is the statesman. The big question then is to define what is a polis, what is a political society. His first way into the question is to ask who acts, the leader or the society? What constitutes the identity of a political society? And his answer is, it has to do with citizenship. See, that's the Latinized form of polites. It means the member of the city. But it's not just any member of the city. See, it's not just any member of any household who lives within the confines of the city or has business in the city. The citizen will have a very distinctive function. The citizen, he says, shares in the deliberative and judicial functions of the city. I think that's worth looking at and thinking about. The citizen shares in the deliberative and judicial functions of the city. Aristotle has in mind the assemblies and the courts. To put it another way, a citizen is the one who rules, or rather the citizen participates in rule. We could say rule, citizenship, is a function of reason and prudence. The citizen holds office, if you will. Citizenship is itself an office in the Aristotelian sense. That is, one who can go to the assembly and help deliberate, or who goes to court and helps judge about violations of the law. I think in our own society, we can see the retention of these, certainly when it comes to the courts. We can all be called for jury duty. That is the classical Greek sense, what may be one of the few shreds remaining of politics as Aristotle understood it. Or certainly during an election year, we remember that we are citizens in the Aristotelian sense. That is, that we must in some way go to the assembly 
that we must listen to people speak about what's good for the country. We must be willing to speak also and help deliberate about matters of common concern. So if the citizen is one who shares in deliberative and judicial functions of a city, the Constitution, see the politeia, the polites is the citizen of the polis, the city. The politeia is often translated the Constitution. The Constitution is what really provides for the identity of the polis because individual citizens will come into existence, be born, grow, and die. What stays over time is the Constitution. So the Constitution provides the identity of the polis. There are material factors, as I've mentioned, the material cause of territory, a people, a people organized according to various household or tribal patterns. There may be ethnic elements involved, but that's just a material factor. It's not what makes the distinctiveness of the political society. Again, part of the perversion of Nazism and racist type political societies is to take that material factor as if it would be the specifying fact of justice is a great mistake. The formal factor then, the formal cause, what makes a polis a polis, and what makes it a specific kind of polis, is the politeia, that is the constitution. It's a schema, ordering the parts in a certain way. That's what a politeia or constitution is. It's the schema or formal ordering. Here's a definition that he gives. It's why I ask you to jump over to book four, chapter one, and then we'll go back to book three because it's such a clear definition. He says the constitution is, quote, the organization of offices in a city by which their method of distribution is fixed. The sovereign authority determines and the nature of the end to be pursued by the association and all its members is prescribed. So that definition of a constitution, the politeia, is an organization of offices. That is, who is going to deliberate in the assembly and judge in the courts? How will they be distributed? That is, who will have that privilege of being a participant in the political life of the city. Who will be the sovereign authority? And what is the nature of the end? That is, for what purpose is the society organized? So again, just to think about the elements here, we have the distribution of offices. That has to do with an idea of justice. Who ought to rule? A question of authority, the sovereign authority for a common good. And then third, the end to be pursued. There must be an idea of the good life at the heart of a political society. Now I think it's worth turning here to Maritain and his book Man in the State to get a feel for this notion 
of political society because I think Maritain captures it well in Man in the State, especially pages 10 to 11, but these first 18 pages or so, he distinguishes nation from political society from state. Basically his idea is this, that the term nation does refer more to the material basis of the political society. It has to do with the peoples who make up the society. He says it's a more biological and organic concept, the notion of nation. State, on the other hand, is more formal or instrumental. That's why it's a mistake to translate Aristotle's term polis as state. State is a modern concept deriving from Machiavelli, which has to do with a certain organization of power or instruments of state to have greater effect in achieving the goals of the people. The state also has this notion more of bureaucratic administration. I think Maritain is just right here to say political society as distinct from nation or state. I'll just quote some here. He says it is the most perfect of temporal societies. That's the Aristotelian notion. The political society is the most perfect because it's the most comprehensive. It's devoted to the highest, Maritain adds the word, temporal good. Obviously, the city of man is not the city of God. But for temporal life, for our human life together, political society is the most perfect of temporal societies. And he goes on to say, it's a concretely and wholly human reality tending to the common good. It's a work of reason. It implies a rational order. But it's not pure reason. The body politic has flesh and blood, instincts, passions, reflexes. All of these subjected, if necessary, by legal coercion to the command of rational decision. Justice is the primary condition for the existence of the body politic. But friendship is its very life-giving form. That's the Aristotelian concept, that we are social and political by nature, and friendship is even greater than law and justice. He says the political society is a really human and freely achieved communion. See, it requires choice on the part of free individuals. It lives on the devotion of the human person and their gift of themselves. They are ready to commit their own existence, their possessions, and their honor for its sake. The civic sense is made up of this sense of devotion and mutual love, as well as a sense of justice and law. Again, that sometimes may sound so foreign to the hurly-burly of political life and manipulation, but I recall reading the fate of the signers of our Constitution. Or think about the signers of our own Declaration who pledge their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor. And someone did send me a note that explained how many of these founders of ours did indeed sacrifice their lives and their fortunes. 
Christians for the sake of this political society. You think also this is another reason why a celebration such as Memorial Day is so important to remember those men who died for the country, that the country does live on persons who are willing to sacrifice themselves for the sake of the political society. And as Lincoln said about men who died in the Civil War, they gave a full measure of devotion. Now, Maritain goes on on page 10 of Man in the State to say that the political society contains in its superior unity family units whose essential rights and freedoms are interior to itself and a multiplicity of other particular societies. This is the element of pluralism. Family, economic, cultural, educational, and religious life matter as much as political life to the very existence and prosperity of the body politic. We'll return to this issue of structural pluralism in a later lesson. But finally, Maritain says, I think this is the culminating statement about the importance of political society, that public welfare and the general order of law are parts of the common good, but the common good is far larger and richer. The common good is not only a collection of public commodities and services, which the organization of common life presupposes also a sound physical condition, a strong military force, a body of just laws, good customs, wise institutions, the heritage of its great historical remembrances, its symbols and its glories, its living traditions and cultural treasures. The common good includes an integration of civic conscience, political virtue, a sense of law and freedom, of moral rectitude, justice, friendship, heroism in the lives of its individuals. To the extent that all these things are communicable and revert to each member, that's the common good. Helping him to perfect his life and liberty as a person, they constitute the good human life of the multitude. So this is a very exalted notion of political life, but it is not an idealistic one. It is not a utopian one. In Aristotle's own analysis, and I think from the reading of our own history or the history of political regimes, Maritain is right to see that political society depends on its sense of its politeia, that is, its organization with an idea of justice and an idea of the good life. I think another place to go to understand this Greek notion of the politeia is a little passage from Leo Strauss that will be found in the supplements. It's from his book, Natural Right and History. Strauss says that politeia is ordinarily translated as constitution. But when using the term constitution in a political context, modern men inevitably mean a legal phenomenon, a fundamental law of the land. So when we say constitution, U.S. Constitution, 
We do think of the parchment in Philadelphia that inscribes the fundamental law of the land. Strauss explains, though, that politeia is not primarily a legal phenomenon, that Aristotle uses it in contradistinction to law. Politeia is the source of law. Politeia is the factual distribution of power, not the constitutional stipulations about the power. The politeia may be defined by laws, but it need not be. He goes on to say, when speaking of politeia, the classics, Aristotle, thought of a way of life, of a community, determined by its form of government. So Strauss recommends we translate politeia not by constitution, but by the term regime. If regime has the connotation broadly to include a way of society and form of government. And he says it's rooted in this. The character or tone of a society depends on what the society regards as most respectable or most worthy of admiration. By regarding certain habits or attitudes as more respectable, a society admits the superiority of those human beings who embody these habits or attitudes in question. That is to say, every society regards a specific human type or a specific mixture of human types as authoritative. When the authoritative type is the common man, everything has to justify itself before the tribunal of the common man. Everything which cannot be justified before that tribunal becomes at best merely tolerated, if not despised or suspect. What is true of the society ruled by the common man applies also to societies ruled by the priest, the wealthy merchant, the warlord, the gentleman, and so on. In order to be truly authoritative, the human beings who embody the admired habits or attitudes must have the decisive say within the community in broad daylight. They must form the regime. End of quote from Leo Strauss. I think that helps to explain what may strike an American reader as a strange question when Aristotle asks whether mechanics and laborers can be citizens. It's not simply aristocratic bias that leads to that question but an empirical study of many kinds of constitutions in which various types or authoritative types are allowed or form the regime. And to have one authoritative type may exclude the other. So that whereas in an aristocratic society, the mechanic may not be admitted to office, it was part of the Greek experience that in democratic societies, the more wealthy or excellent would be excluded from office. The Greek democracies often used banishment as a form of getting rid of superiorities so that the common man could rule. Now this is what gets to the contentious side of politics, and it's the next step in our understanding of Aristotle's political philosophy. That is, who ought to rule? For what purpose should the political society exist? 
you see how the way of life of a society is more than just the legal stipulations of who will occupy office and what are the fundamental purposes of the society. But it has to do with a deeper question. It's what Plato captures perhaps the best in the Republic when he sees the parallel between the city and the soul, or the city and the man. That is, the order of society reflects in some way the order of the soul. Now, Aristotle will have a different typology of regimes than Plato, but I think we can still appreciate the Platonic idea. You see, that if it's a warrior society, the middle part of the soul, the spirited part, or thumos, will be that which is given more play than in a more bourgeois society, say, or an oligarchy devoted to money-making. See, the point of this is, it's not just who is in office, but what kind of attitudes, what sense of the good and justice is brought to the office, so that the very sense of justice, the very sense of the purpose of political society, will be determined by who is authoritative in the society? Now, in Greek practice, the two great types of society are democratic and oligarchic. And we will have to elaborate some, and actually in some great detail, on what that is. But I would like to just finish off this part by looking at Book 3, Chapter 4, just another example of what Aristotle has in mind by the Politeia. He says that the most accurate definition will be a common definition based on a common end and looking at what objects are being achieved. The citizen, then, he will say, is not the same as the good man. Or let me just elaborate on this a little bit. Aristotle says that because the citizen is defined by the character of his regime, it may be that a good citizen is not the same, or certainly not the fullness of what a good man would be like. That is, Aristotle envisions there being oligarchic citizens who are good citizens, but not necessarily good men, or democratic citizens. And again, we'll have to understand how he defines democratic. He understands by democratic those who seek to live not for virtue, but simply for freedom or variety. He thinks that the democratic citizen is not the same as the good man. The good citizen and the good man, therefore, are overlapping concepts. And Aristotle thinks that politics doesn't capture the full scope or sweep of human excellence. That is, even though politics is aimed at excellence and virtue, he is quite practical in realizing that everyday politics 
will not embody the full perfection that human beings are capable of. We know at the end of the Ethics in Book 10, he even talks about a virtue or an excellence beyond the city. Contemplative life, the excellence of the philosopher, is something that is beyond politics. So this notion of the citizen, we will see, helps him to be very practical about politics, but also he keeps it in tension with the notion of the good man, so that he's able, much like Plato, to on the one hand have the highest standard for politics, that is the good man and the achievement of excellence. But he realizes in practical achievement there will be variations on how that is achieved. So that the goal of political life, even though it is excellence or virtue, must also make sure that it can produce a stable regime that's not given to faction or infighting, and that can produce an appreciation for freedom, that is, a regime that can respect the possibility of initiative and resistance from others. So this is Aristotle's great achievement to put together the highest idealism of Plato, oriented to the highest perfections of being human in political life, but on the other hand, not giving way to an imprudent idealism, but being very aware of the limits and practical possibilities of politics. But that's exactly what prudence should be able to achieve, is what is the best in these circumstances. We will end this lesson three then, and we will next turn to some of the specifics of his account. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.